0: Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of God.
1: Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 to 23, we've been looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're going to be doing that all year. And Paul's letter to the Ephesians is, teaches us the foundations and the meaning of God's church. And what's the heart of the message? At least in chapter 1, you see in verses 17 to 18, Paul says, I pray that you may know, that you may know. Verse 17, that you may know Jesus better. Verse 18, he says, I pray that you may know these three things, three things that come with knowing Jesus Three things that in some ways some ways, serves as a litmus, litmus test in becoming a Christian. Now, keep in mind, Paul's prayer is that you would know, that you would know Jesus. Paul's in prison. Christians all over the world are suffering. But notice, he's not praying for circumstances. In fact, in the four letters that Paul writes that are called the prison epistles, Although Paul does pray for circumstances at times, it's never at the heart of his message. It's never at the heart of any of his letters. And so whenever he's praying for people, uh, and whenever he's praying for what the people most need, he prays that they may know. In all four letters, he prays, number one, I thank God for you. And number two, he prays that they may know Jesus better, that they may know what it means to be loved by Jesus. What does it mean? There are three things we're going to learn today. Why does Paul pray this prayer? Two, what is the prayer? What is the heart of the prayer? And lastly, how do you experience what Paul's praying about? Why does Paul pray? What is the prayer? How do you experience what Paul's praying about? First, why why the prayer? It's because in verse 15 he says, I heard about two things. What did he hear? One, your faith He's talking to his church. He's talking to the church in, in Ephesus. Your faith in the Lord Jesus and two, your love for all the saints. Now, for the past month, we've been talking about what it means to be a Christian, the foundations of the church. A Christian, we've been saying, is intimately, organically, legally bound in union with Christ. That means that what Jesus has, you have. What Jesus earned, In a sense, you've earned. What Jesus deserved, you received. That's the faith part. Because of our union with Christ, because we are legally and organically and intimately bound with Christ, God gives us a faith to connect with him. But the text is also saying that a Christian is not just experiencing union with Jesus, he experiences union with the body of Jesus, Christ's body, love for all the saints. Now, one, let's... We'll look about, let's look at uh, faith in the Lord Jesus. In other words, what Paul's saying is your lifestyle may be important, but it doesn't define you. Your lifestyle may be important, but it's not determinant of who you are. Now, look, religious people say this they say, obedience is obedience leads to you being loved by God. Obedience leads to you being accepted by God. You may have, I was brought up in a church believing that pretty much half my life. That obedience drives acceptance. That's not what a Christian says. The gospel says this, God's acceptance, God's grace, the fact that God treasures you, the fact that God loves you, The fact that God showed that, demonstrated his love on the cross of Christ, that leads us to obedience. Religious people say obedience leads to acceptance. The gospel says acceptance leads to obedience. In other words, obedience is necessary, but it's not primary. Obedience is necessary, it's not sufficient. What you believe always comes first, then comes the response. Now, you don't even have to think too hard about it, right? Think about this. If you go to your boyfriend, if you go to your girlfriend, you go to your spouse, you go to your, a child, you ask, why did you get me this wonderful gift? Why did you give this to me? And if they respond, well, you know, if I don't, you're going to be angry, I know it. If I don't, then you're not going to love me, right? If I don't, then you're going to disregard me, you're going to reject me. Would you respond, yes? love you. I taught you so well. Is that what you'd say? No, you wouldn't say that. You'd be sad. It would grieve you. It would grieve your heart. You would say this. You would say, you know, you totally misunderstand how much I love you. You totally misunderstand my relationship with you. My love for you, that's what should drive why you do anything for me. Right? You get that? Now, why is that important? Today, irreligious people, they'll say this. Who cares what you believe what matters is how you live right who cares what you believe as long as you're living right as long as you live a good life that's what matters on the other hand you have religious people a religious person would say how you live defines what you believe in essence both irreligious and religious people are saying what matters is how you live that's what defines you right Christianity says something completely the opposite. The gospel says what you believe always drives what you do. What you really believe will drive what you do. Your lifestyle is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Today we have this term. It's called apocalyptic dating, apocalyptic sex. It kind of sounds like what it is. In other words, if all we are are chemicals that have just randomly, chaotically collided to become who we are, to become life, if life is random, coming out of chaos, then what meaning is there? Because there's no end. There's no heaven. There's no God. There's no, there's no hell. There's no end. So what meaning really is there? And so when this world comes to an end, there's nothingness. There's absolutely nothing. So what's the point then of living right? What's the point of studying hard? What's the point of staying sexually pure? What's the point of any of these things? Because there's no meaning. There's no meaning to my life. There's no meaning to your life. I'm just going to live the way I'm going to live. What's the point of staying sexually pure? And you know what? That philosophy, that mentality is ruining our teenagers. It's ruining our college students. It's preventing people from living rich lives, true intimacy, born out of relationship, in process, into marriage, into commitment, into union. It's ruining people's lives in that respect. It's ruining people, single people, from living very, very rich, single lives. And so in this connected world, we have people who are living, society is much more fragmented, distrusting, lonely, lonely than ever before. No matter what you claim your beliefs are, what you really believe defines you. What you really believe, you will base your life on that. What belief makes you a Christian? People say, well, you see, to be a Christian, it means you need to go to church. You need to trust what the Bible says. You need to obey what the Bible says. Let me ask you this. But do you become a Christian by living like that? No, you don't. Because what makes you a Christian is not how hard you try, but seeing that no matter how hard you try, you can't get access to God on your own. What makes you a Christian is not your gifts, not how hard you try, not your abilities, not your skills. It's that you believing your record is not enough your merit is not enough your goodness is not good enough and so you cling to the mercy of jesus you cling to the record of jesus you cling to the merit of jesus you're trusting jesus rather than highlighting your gifts what are you doing paul says the apostle paul says i boast in my weakness why because it increases my trust in jesus faith in jesus is perfect righteousness Faith in Jesus' work on the cross, paying the penalty for my sins and my failures and my flaws. That's it. That's what it is. Faith in what? Faith in Christ. Paul says, ever since I heard about your faith in Christ. Second, he says, and your love for all the saints. Faith is primary, but lifestyle is still necessary. It's not sufficient, but it's necessary. Real faith always leads to love. Look, It's easy, it's very easy to sing about Jesus as your king, especially when things are going well, especially when we're winning, right? But if you really believe in your heart that your bank account is primary or that your children are primary, that your marriage or getting married is primary or your reputation is primary, if those things sit as primary in your life, in your core, they will sit as the center of your motivation. They will consume your day. They will consume your thoughts. They will consume your anxieties, what you pray about, what you work for, what circles you hang in, and you will be devastated if something threatens those things. You will be devastated if you lose those things. And that thing will shape how you view other people, how you treat other people. You're gonna wonder, is that person good for my bank account? Is that person good for my children? Is that person good for my reputation? Faith in Jesus always, always leads to love. Why? Because it takes away the anxiety, it takes away the selfishness, it takes away the ego and the pride, it takes away the jealousy, it takes away the judgment. All those things are gone. Think about how we judge people. If you've grown up in the church, surely. Like me, you've judged other people. Think about how you judge people in the church. You look at how someone dresses. You look at what words they use, how they speak. I'm not trying to give us, make us self-conscious, right? But you look at how we dress and how we speak, how we pray, how we carry ourselves in the church. And you say to yourself, in your heart, you're not going to say it out loud. In your heart, you're going to say, that person is probably not a Christian. That person can't be a Christian. Why do we do that? It's because we're forgetting that faith is primary. If lifestyle was primary, King David, he did terrible things. The apostle Paul who wrote this letter did terrible things. The Apostle Peter did terrible things. Meanwhile, Jesus, in Mark chapter five, comes to a woman. She comes to a woman who's been bleeding for twelve years, hasn't been in a temple for twelve years because she's unclean, doesn't know theology, doesn't has wrong theology for that matter. If I touch, if I just touch his clothes, then I'll be healed. She has terrible theology. Doesn't know Jesus. Heard about Jesus. Hasn't been in a temple. Doesn't hang with the religious folk. Outcast. Didn't live a good life. Doesn't even know what a good life is, so to speak. But after she's healed, you know what he says to her? Your faith has healed you. You can't ever say, well, a Christian wouldn't do that. A Christian doesn't do that. If you do, you don't get the gospel. You do not understand the gospel. The gospel takes away your ego. The gospel takes away judgment. Notice Paul says the love, love for all the saints. By saints, he's talking about all Christians, all Christians. He says this in all his letters. Now think about this. Most likely, this letter was circulated to multiple churches throughout the region of Ephesus, multiple churches. And so it's not like the Apostle Paul knew every single Christian in Ephesus, He's writing to the church in Ephesus as one body, and he's saying, I heard about your love for Jesus, and I heard about your love for the body of Jesus. Your respect, your honor, your love, your care for one another. You don't judge people. You don't hold biases against them. You don't gossip about other people. You just demonstrate love. Friends, that is, that's a warm church. That's an inviting church. That's the church of Christ. Why is that important? Before you became a Christian, what mattered? Before you became a Christian, your social circles, being in, is primary, most important. It's a lonely world. It's a dangerous world, lonely world. Being in, so important. And the reason why is because it gives you a sense of worth, feeling accepted, being known. Today we live in probably one of those politically fragmented societies in the history of this country, one of the most racially divided societies in probably the last 60 years. Where does that come from? It's because deep inside there's this insecurity, and that insecurity has been there ever since the Garden of Eden, way back. If you've ever opened up a Bible, Genesis chapter 1, way back, the Garden of Eden, in the garden, there was trust. In the garden, there was union. In the garden, there was acceptance. Man, God, accepted together in union. God walked with man in the cool of the day. And so man was at peace. There was oneness. There was security. There was acceptance. There was love. You know what sin is? Sin is this. I do not trust that God has my best interests in mind. Sin creates this deep distrust of God. And so uh, you start saying, I'm going to leave security, true security, capital S, to find security someplace else. That's what we're saying. And what happens? For the first time, for the first time in our lives, we experience nakedness. We were always naked, but we experienced the shame of nakedness. We were exposed. There's this shame There's this deep-rooted insecurity, and so what man does is he hides, and Adam blames Eve, and Adam blames God for this. Eve is blaming as well. There's blame shifting going on, and what happens is there's this deep-rooted insecurity that develops because we chose it, and we're driven out of the garden. God drives us out of the garden, and so now we're out. Sin results in a deep alienation from one another, between us and God, a vertical as well as a horizontal alienation. There's this nakedness, shame, and we're so constantly covering ourselves. Why? There's this insecurity, deep-rooted insecurity, because we're out. We're out of the garden. We're out. No knowledge of God. Since then, what do we do to cover over that, to make up for that loss? We're constantly trying to make our way back in on our own strength or with our own gifts, who we've got, whatever we've got, constantly needing to prove ourselves to get back in. And one of the best ways that we find to do that is what? We find the right social circle. We find the right circles to hang in. Now I'm in. Now I feel in. I feel like I belong. One of the ways that we know that the gospel is shaping us is what? We no longer use other people. There's genuine love. We're no longer using people. We're no longer loving people to get something, to feel something for ourselves. That's not genuine. You're still using people when we're doing that. We're no longer using status, our social circles, as a way of proving our sense of worth. Why? Because Ephesians 1, if you read the first part, if you've been with us the last month, there's worth There's the worth. There's worth because Christ knows you. He's chosen you. He's adopted you. He's redeemed you. We're forgiven by God. God has made himself known to us. And so Paul literally says, you were included in Ephesians chapter 1. We are in. We are marked with a seal. We are heirs. The gospel humbles us because we know we never earned it. We never deserved it. That's going to take away the ego. That's going to take away the superiority. That's going to take away the pride. And so when you connect with people who are very different from you and Metro, because, you know, one of the beautiful things about a church plan is that people who are very different come together. And it has to be intentional. We're intentional with one another, not because we're looking for people who have similarities We have the one common acceptance. We are brothers, friends in Christ. Don Carson says the church is made up of natural enemies, right? And so there's no ego. The gospel takes away the pride. You're you're connecting with people who are very different from you socially, very different economically, very different racially, ideologically. And yet there's this respect. There's this invitation There's this humility. We're able to listen to one another. There's a serving of one another. You'd never do that before you're a Christian. But because Jesus Christ, the King, the High King, came down and he came down and he touched, gave access. He showed love and respect because of the kindness of our Lord Jesus shown to us that shaped us, that changed us love for all the saints. Then the church stops being a social center, although deep relationships always form, and becomes a mission center. That's why Paul prays, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love for all the saints. What is the prayer The first prayer is that you may know Jesus better, right? But then he goes into three things. He says, I'm praying that you come to know these three things. One, he says, the hope of his calling. Two, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Three, the incomparable power of God. First, we're going to look at the hope of his calling, Remember, the word hope we've been talking about the last couple weeks, it's a word that's not based on uncertainty, right, but certainty. Paul's saying, my prayer is that you would come to know the certainty of your calling. Paul knew Christians everywhere, they're suffering. Christians everywhere are suffering. He's not praying for circumstances at the heart because if he knows That if you know the certainty of your calling, you will be able to endure any circumstance. He knows that. So what is he saying? The hope of your calling? The hope of our calling? The hope of his calling? Us? Paul's saying, you didn't become a Christian because you were wise. You didn't become a Christian because you were stronger than other people. You didn't become a Christian because you were nicer than other people. You didn't become a Christian because you are smarter than other people. You didn't become a Christian because you're more popular or more lovable than other people. But by God's sheer grace, grace alone, God called you. The very nature of a calling is that somebody initiates and you receive. And God called you in your weakness. God calls you through your weakness God calls you in your sin because it's through your weakness, through your flaws, through those insecurities, through that brokenness, through that sin that you come to know that you are incapable of saving yourself. That's how you come to know Jesus. He says, consider your calling. The only way, one, it's the only way, one, that you will have poise and confidence in the, in the midst of suffering. And two, it means that if you're a Christian that, that's been saved by God's sheer grace, there's no superiority complex. You know why we act superior? It's because inside we feel inferior. There's no superiority complex anymore. Why? Because on one hand, you did nothing to earn this amazing love and access to God. The only thing you actually contributed was what? Your brokenness, your sinfulness. That's the only thing you contributed. But if you believe that you yourself are a miracle by God's grace alone, you can have hope in anyone. You can have hope for anyone. Do you believe right now? Friends, let me speak to you. I'd like to speak to you as a father sometimes, as a friend. Let me speak to you as a pastor. Do you believe that the gospel can change anyone right now. Right now, that person that you're thinking, that person will never come. It would take a miracle for that person to come to Christ. You're the miracle. You're the miracle. Do you believe that the gospel can change anyone right now? If you do, you will never say, that person, roll your eyes, that person's hopeless. It's going to change the way you care for people. It's going to change the way you love people. Biggest flaw in the church, I think at least, is not how little Christians know about the Bible. It's not how little Christians know about systematic theology. It's not how little people know in terms of how to defend their faith. That's not the biggest flaw in the church today, at least I think. The biggest flaw is our smugness, our condescension, our attitude towards others, even towards one another, even towards other churches. You never show disrespect towards other saints, you never show disrespect towards somebody who may not be a saint. There should be a genuine love and in- invitation. You see that? But only an act of God can change these people. If you see how smug, if you see how sinful, if you see how condescending you are, and yet you've been saved by the grace of God alone, that's the miracle. You will be able to believe anybody can change. If I can change, anyone can change. There goes the condescension. There goes the smugness. You see that? The hope of your calling, it's going to give you poise. It's going to enable you to hope for anyone. Number two, he says, I pray that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, the riches of being God's church. God's church, that's the glorious inheritance in the saints. There's richness in being God's church. He said, I pray that you would know that. The saints is his church, his glorious inheritance. The word there is, I pray that you would understand. I pray that you would know the riches of being God's net worth. That's what he's saying. That word inheritance is, is the Greek word that, that can be translated as God's treasure, his net worth. If you're a Christian, that's you. That's what he's saying. Verse 23, he says, we are his body, the fullness of him. That Greek word, pleroma, right? If you're a Christian, that's you, the fullness of God. You know what that means? My favorite sport, believe it or not, is not football. It's baseball, and I know it's boring, and, you know, people have ah, baseball, right? Let me tell you about baseball, all right? Imagine a five-tool player. You know what that means? This player can hit for power, home runs. He can hit for average. He's always, he always gets on base, right? He fields well. He runs the bases very quickly. He's got a great arm, so he can throw. That's a five-tool player, very rare in baseball. That means that this player coming out of high school has tremendous potential, His rookie year, he walks up, he blasts 20 home runs. Big, skyrocketing home runs. Solid season. Now it's his second year. He's seasoned. He knows now what he needed to do to prepare in the offseason for this next year. He's eating all the right foods. He bulks up a little bit. He's practicing. He's studied the pitchers. Now he's faced them once before, so he knows these pitchers. He's ready for these pitchers. He gets up, he's focused, he's seasoned, he's worked out, he's studied. And this year they're saying he's on pace to break records. What do they say? This man is playing to his potential, the fullness of his potential. He is becoming the fulfillment of what the scouts have been saying since he's in middle school. And Paul's saying that the all-powerful God has so chosen to tie himself and his people. We, we, the church, is the way that he has chosen to demonstrate his fullness and his beauty and his glory. We are the fulfillment of his glory and beauty. That's amazing. That's amazing. Parents, you know about this. Our children, parents, our children are our glory in a sense, right? They're reflections of your image. So they're the images of your humor. You can see your humor in them. You can see your beauty in them. You can see your your gifts and your intelligence in them. You can see your tempers in them. You can see your selfishness in them. You can see your sin, your sinfulness, your flaws, your brokenness in them. And so when your kids succeed, it feels like you've succeeded. And when your kids experience brokenness, when they fail, you're even more disappointed than they are in some ways. You know why? Because it feels like you failed. And so that's why we're arrogant and boastful of our children When they do well, we push them harder. When we drive, them, we push them and push them. And we get so down when they fail or when they get hurt. You know why? Because they easily become our glory. You have to fight against that. Because unlike God, we're very needy. We're born insecure and needy and flawed and empty, right? And so we kind of use them as replacements of our glory. We so want them to succeed because if they do well, if they do better than I, then I've done well, right? But Paul's saying this, this selfless, infinite, self-sufficient, glorious God who never lacked anything, never needed anything, he chose us, wrapped his glory in with us and chose us to be his fulfillment, bound his glory, bound his glory with us. So when we sin, when we rebel, we're not just breaking rules. You know, we're not, God's not looking at you saying, you know, you broke these rules. That's not what we're doing. What we're saying is when we sin, I'm choosing to be ugly because you're ugly. I'm choosing to fail because you failed. You made me the way I am. That's what we're saying. God's love is so bound up and so tied up in us in his church So when we sin and go against God, go against what God calls us to be, go against what God designed us to be, the Bible is really showing us what we're designed to be. It's not just a bunch of rules. God's really showing you a blueprint of what you were designed to be to reflect the glory and the beauty, the infinite glory and beauty of the image of God. Bound himself up with us. It breaks his heart when you sin more so than trampling on the law, you're breaking his heart. Paul saying, my prayer is that you will know the riches of being God's treasure. Thirdly, he says, I pray that you would know the incomparable power of God. Verses 19 to 20. This is the power that brought us to faith. That's what he's saying. This is the power, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the resurrected Christ. In verse 22, he says, this is the power by which the king rules everything in the world for the church. So what he's saying is, I pray that you would experience that power, the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that resides in every Christian in this church, he says, I pray that you would experience that incomparable power that brought you to faith, that saved you from death to life. And it's the power that the king in heaven rules everything in the world, all of history, everything that's ever happened, everything that ever will happen until he returns. That power that he is, that's his authority that he is exerting, his power for the church. He says it's for the church. The Bible says God placed everything under the rule of Christ for his church, for his people. He's using his power to rule over history. Now, we see some dark things happening in history. And what Paul's saying is it is not out of God's sovereign power, not out of God's sovereign authority, not God, out of God's sovereign rule. In fact, he's doing and exerting all things under his power for the church. Now, I heard something from my favorite preacher, Tim Keller, a long time ago. He says this. He says something like this. I kind of, I'm going to retool it to fit this, okay? He says this. A few years ago, I started Metro. I started Metro, right? Not Tim Keller. I started Metro, right? Um, Why? Because originally, I came back to Philadelphia, no intention to plant a church. I came to Philadelphia to go to law school. If you don't know me too well, that's what happened. Why did I go to law school? Why did I get into law school? Because I went to grad school in Boston, Now, why did I go to grad school in Boston? Because I went to college in Boston. Why did I go to college in Boston, my undergrad? Albert Einstein, in 1948, he assisted with the founding of my college. He wanted my college, he wanted an American education to offer an opportunity for bright Jewish students. Why? Because the world was embroiled in war, a global war. The world was engaged in a war to defeat tyranny in Europe. So, you have Churchill and Eisenhower and Franklin Roosevelt, Dunkirk, Normandy. Has your life changed at Metro? Has your life been changed by being here in this community? Paul saying, Dunkirk, Normandy, Einstein, Eisenhower, Roosevelt was for you. Everything under his rule. For the church. God is using and has used history. God has placed everything under the rule of Christ for the church, for the saints, for you. You know what that means? Right now, God is using your darkest moments. Friends, the last two years for me have been like the ugliest years of my life. I contemplated walking away from ministry five, six times a day, not through the whole two years, but probably for a good stretch of five or six months. God is using to know and believe that God is using history, your suffering, your deepest darkness, your brokenness, things that you would say, how could there be a God if I'm going through something like this? Will you trust in the certainty of his calling? Will you trust in the certainty of His calling? That you are the church, the richness of God's glorious inheritance. Will you trust in the power of God working through even your darkest experiences, darkest moments for you? You know, the Bible doesn't say that all things are good. The Bible doesn't say that. If... Nobody understands suffering more than a God who suffered. Nobody understands darkness more than you know, when Jesus hung on the cross, darkness came. Nobody understands darkness more than Jesus. But to know that God works through that darkness to bring the light of glory and salvation in your life. Paul saying, My prayer is that you would know that. That's prayer. How do you experience it? In verses 17 to 18, Paul says, I pray that you would get the spirit of wisdom and revelation, right? He's saying that, that your eyes will be enlightened, that you will be illumined. That's what he's saying. When we say, I've pastor and counseled quite a number of people here, and, uh, you know, a lot of times they come to me with a problem. And we're talking through things. Inevitably, we get to the gospel, And they say, I know, but I'm still anxious. I know, but I still feel this way. The reason is because you don't really know. It's not in your heart. At least not in your heart. You don't know. When you say, I know the gospel, but right there, it means you don't know. You don't really know. What I'm saying is you may know it, but it hasn't shaped you. It hasn't changed you. And so you're deceiving yourself when you say, I know. Because Paul's saying, I'm praying that you know. It's because you don't know. Even though you know, Paul wants you to know, right? There's a difference, right? That's what he's saying, right? I want you to take hope in knowing that God can make things so real. God can make things so real. Right now, there could be clouds hanging over your life. Does that mean that there's darkness forever? Does a child sit there? I mean, as a child, you may think that when when he sees dusk for the first time in his life, he's gonna wonder if it's his first time. Will there ever be light again? Right? And you can say, trust me, there's gonna be light. Let me tell you this: a lot of us, broken. We come from very broken contexts. A lot of suffering. Friends, I, I understand. My father was murdered at the age of five. I can share with you about suffering. Not to go tit for tat with you, but I understand, okay? If there's clouds, dark clouds in your lives right now, and there's a lot of suffering and a lot of brokenness, and I cannot nor want to minimize any of it, does that mean there's no sun? One day, one day, the clouds are going to go away, and the light will shine. You'll see it. So be ready. Prepare. Do the things that we're always called to do. What he's saying right here, pray that prayer for yourself that you would know. Just keep praying that prayer that you would know. Meditate on these truths until the clouds roll away and there's light and then everything starts to make sense. It takes a while. It's a process. It takes a while. Okay? God will make things, God can make things so real that your despair itself could be removed. Remember that phrase, Lord of the Rings? Forgive me for my despair. Forgive me for my despair. What you can't do is, you can't say, it's dark, I'm suffering, so I'm praying, I'm just going to keep trying. I'm going to keep trying, I'm going to start to work. I'm going to start to do things. Clearly I'm not doing something right here. You can't do that. That's not Christianity. Paul prays for a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you would really know. How do you know? In John chapter 14 through 17, it's about three chapters there, about three or four chapters, Jesus is talking about him returning to the Father, and then what he does is he begins to pray, and he prays for the church. He prays for you. Jesus Christ, God the King, came down, and what he does on the night he's being betrayed, he prays for the church. And what he prays is this. In John 17, he says, they knew with certainty that I came from you. And they believed. And he says, I've sent them. He prays that they would be with me. There is the hope. There is the hope of our calling. God sending you. God calling you. Right? You believe. then You knowing with certainty that, that Jesus came from God. There is the call. There is the hope. He prays this. Father, they are yours. And all I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. In other words, I have tied up, I bound up my glory with these people. There is the riches, there is the glorious inheritance in the saints. He prays, Father, protect them by the power of your name. There is the power, that incomparable power. You see, all three of those things, Jesus is praying for his people. Jesus is praying for the church. Religious people say, so you're not experiencing the certainty? You don't feel certain? You don't, you're not experiencing the riches? You're not experiencing power? You better earn it. You better work because you're not obeying. You better pray for it. You better just keep praying. The gospel says this. You haven't experienced it yet. You haven't experienced the certainty of the calling. You haven't experienced the riches of his glorious inheritance. You, you haven't experienced the incomparable power of being known by God. Jesus prays for you. Jesus earned it for you. Jesus worked and labored and groaned on the cross for you. Very important because for Jesus to pray this prayer, Jesus, he's praying knowing that tomorrow he will suffer, the immediate tomorrow. Jesus knows he's about to be arrested. Jesus is praying knowing that for him to pray this prayer He will have to sacrifice what he's praying for. For Jesus to pray, I want you to be in, I want you to have certainty that you are in, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was cast out. On the cross, he says, Why have you forsaken me? That's why Jesus was crucified outside of the city. He was cast out. On the cross, Jesus says, Well, for Jesus to pray, they are yours. And my glory has come to me through them. They are the glorious inheritance. For Jesus to pray that prayer, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was disowned on the cross. It's the only time in all the Gospels, that Jesus doesn't refer to God as his Father. He was disowned by God. Why? So you could be in, you would be that treasure of God. You know, God looks at Jesus as he was being baptized and says, this is my son whom I love. He was doting on his son, and yet on the cross, he rejected his son. Why? So that you would be accepted. You would be in. That you would be treasured by God. Do you know that? Every time you look at the cross, you see that you are treasured by God. You are loved by God. For Jesus to pray, I want them, I want them to be protected by your spirit, that they would experience power. For Jesus to pray that you would be endowed with power, he had to give up power. On the cross, he says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. On the cross, Jesus died alone, Naked, poor, stripped naked, there is the insecurity, the wrath of God pelting him, pouring out. He's saying, I'm alone, I'm worthless, I am cursed. Why? So you would have the hope and the calling. This is an invitation. Jesus Christ was rejected and became worthless so that you would be the great inheritance. Jesus Christ was drained of his power. Why? So you would be endowed with his power. On one hand, yes, we have to pray. You need to, as as part of application, you need to pray this prayer. If If there are moments of darkness and you're just not experiencing this, the hope of your calling, that you are God's treasure, you're not experiencing that power, the power that raised Jesus from death, So you can overcome sin, in a sense. So you can battle against it every day, every moment. You need to pray Paul's prayer for yourself. Let that be your prayer. Please open my eyes because I don't see. Please open my heart because I don't know. You have to meditate on these truths. Take Take these truths, rest on it. What does that mean? It means take this word you're going to get together in your community groups, plug into community. And as you plug into community, you take these words, and when you share what you're sharing is, if I really believed in the gospel, how should my life be different today? Meditate on it. Think about it. Ponder on it. Contemplate it. Meditate. Be specific. But neither of those things mean anything without reflecting on and seeing and trusting the gospel. Where does hope come from? Where do the riches come from? Where does power come from? Look to the cross, and there you see it. Jesus pouring out and saying, it is finished. In other words, I have paid the debt so you would be endowed with power and richness and God's calling. Trust in him be captivated by Jesus' beauty, be captivated by His grace, and you will know, you will know Jesus better, and you will know everything that you have in Christ. Let's pray together.